Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cathedral of St. James podcast. The conversation you're about to listen to was led by Dr. Amy Maxey on sexism, androcentrism, patriarchy, and the scriptures, tools for cultivating critical reading practices today. Dr. Maxey received her PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame. Her research focuses on Christian mysticism, approaching this tradition from a systematic and feminist perspective. Her work is formed by a critical feminist perspective which both reclaims overlooked theological contributions from women, mystical authors, and applies feminist critical theory to interpret mystical texts and to analyze paradigms for conceptualizing mysticism. Her current project investigates the traditional language of action and contemplation in Christian mystical theologies in light of contemporary theological discourse of the mystical political, contending that attending to critical feminist, race, and class consciousness enriches retrieval of these pre-modern spiritual traditions. This conversation was part of our Fall 2021 series titled, Reading the Bible from the Margins. Inspired and guided by Miguel de la Torre's book, Reading the Bible from the Margins, this series is ultimately about the spiritual discipline of listening. While many of the church's readings of the scriptures have been focused on perspectives at the center or from places of power and privilege, De La Torre challenges us, the church, to the spiritual discipline of listening to perspectives that are often ignored, readings from the margins of society. Readings of the Bible from the margins of society reveal that, ultimately, the Bible is a text of hope and a God whose essence is the liberation of all who are oppressed. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening. you all. Uh, as every week, I'm very excited for this morning um, because uh, a friend of mine and Samantha's, uh, Dr. Amy Maxey, is joining us. Uh, we met Amy uh, four years ago, three years ago in Belgium. Because <laughs> uh, uh, Samantha and Amy were both presenting at a, at a conference. Um, and over the years, we've had lots of conversations and Amy's just someone I have a deep respect for her theological knowledge. And Amy, I am very thankful that you're here with us this morning to talk to us about um, reading the Bible from the margins um, and uh, especially from by women, the feminist perspective, maybe the womanist perspective. Um, and I should just just also mention that graduate your PhD this year, yes. doctorate in theology from Notre Dame. Yes. And are currently teaching a course um, on a uh, Christianity, racism, and race. Yeah, theology and racism. Theology and racism mm -hmm. uh, with Dr. Todd Malatka, who kind of kicked off our series here. So we got very lucky to have you both uh, for the series. So thank you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This is really great. Uh, Stephen also neglected to mention that we are kind of neighbors. We live oh. around the corner from each other, mm -hmm. which is really fantastic. Um, okay, so to, to get started, I wanted to um, approach today not as just giving like a, a litany of places in the Bible where there is sexism. I figured that would not be the greatest thing in the world um, to be doing. But I wanted to think more about what kind of reading practices can we cultivate so that when we do read things in the Bible that um, seem to smack of sexism or something, 
that we have some critical tools to be able to interpret, to understand, and to move forward um, as contemporary people reading the Bible. So that's um, kind of the frame in which I approach today, at least. Uh, so to get started, I thought I'd give a few kind of definitions of what I at least will mean um, today using different terms. So first, uh, sexism. Any kind of bias against women as inherently lesser than men on the basis of their sex or gender, right? So it's kind of a broad term trying to capture um, a lot of things. And I also wanted to say um, that sexism for me at least has a kind of structural dimension, right? It's not just like personal like um, actions against women or biases against women, but there's a kind of imaginative horizon, a worldview in which women are seen as naturally less than uh, men in a variety of ways, be different ways. Um, and in some ways, because it's structural, sexism becomes embedded in cultures in ways that are often difficult to um, analyze and to appreciate on the surface. Often our cultural horizons seem to be natural, seem to be normal. So it's difficult to, to um, critically interrogate things which seem to be just the way things are, right? And so being able to read scripture critically with, in light of this imaginative horizon means that we have to um, be willing to interrogate ourselves as well. All right, so it's two more kind of definitions. Um, one, androcentrism, just male or men-centric. And um, this, we could say that sexism occurs in a cultural horizon shaped by androcentrism. This is perhaps like a, a you know, like the value which leads to sexism. And then the finally, um, patriarchy, which is I think now maybe a common term in our public discourses, but um, particularly thinking about patriarchy as sexism as it's entrenched in social and political power. So it's not just necessarily like, like out there kind of amorphously in the culture, but um, embedded in the ways in which society and social power works out, okay? So I say this at the front because I'll probably use these terms kind of in what I say and I wanna make sure we're all on the same page. All right, so a, a major question is then, well, how is sexism uncovered? How do, how do we rise to a kind of critical consciousness where we no longer take for granted structures or situations where sexism is present? And I wanna note that this is really difficult for many of our cultural values, right? It's difficult to um, attend to the margins if most of our formation and our social worlds haven't made that a, an apparent good for us to pursue. Right, so it's not just for sexism, but for other things too. And uh, these things can happen concretely in kind of in two ways. One way, somebody just points something out to us. They say, well, have you noticed this? Have you thought about this? Uh, you know, well, this isn't the way it works in my family, even though this is maybe the way it works in your family. But on a deeper level, once we start asking these questions about why things are the way they are, 
if we can start imagining different horizons, imagining different possibilities for the way our ways of being in the world and living in the world, then we have kind of new tools, new questions that we can ask about our world. And this is um, what uh, allows us perhaps over time, if these questions are asked enough, if they're asked often enough, that we can start shifting our, our values and our horizons to think of a, 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 a way in which Christian revelation can come to us that doesn't perhaps include a kind of culture of sexism. All right, so all this is by way of kind of like big picture, what it means to read the, the Bible critically with an eye towards sexism is another way of asking like, what kind of imaginative horizons can we have that allow us to negotiate the, the ancient world in which sexism was present in our own contemporary world as we're perhaps struggling to overcome some of this heritage. All right, so I'm gonna read a quote um, from Sandra Schneiders, who is a biblical scholar. She also works in spirituality. And I think that she really captures the, um, like the problem for faithful people reading the Bible, particularly you know, as regards sexism. All right, she says, this text, which was presented as good news of salvation for all people, was actually a book written largely, if not exclusively by men, about men and for men. Women appeared in scripture in much the way they appear in church and society as support systems for males, used and abused by men for the latter's purposes, and most often relegated to the margins or total obscurity. What I think she gets really correct is that there's a whole imaginative horizon of the biblical world written by men for men in which women appear as supporting roles or um, as, uh, you know, kind of like pushed to the margins. And in some ways, there's no getting around that, right? There's no way which we can go like revise the way the Bible was written. So we're kind of stuck in this situation, but it doesn't mean that the, uh, the ancient imagination, like its horizons don't have to be our horizons. We can have different horizons. And um, so if we wanna think about like the kind of biases, like gender biases that we're trying to wrestle with, we have on one hand, like the ancient world and its gender biases. We also have biases present in traditions and interpretation of scripture throughout the ages. We also can't really escape that, right? Like our world is formed by certain um, modes of interpretation. And then we also have our own biases, the own ways in which sexism has shaped our horizons and um, has formed us. And so when we speak of, you know, the title of today, Unmasking the Biblical Justification of Sexism, we could be attending to the sexist biases in any of these dimensions, right? And often we have to attend to all of them at the same time. And the, um, the, the reading practices we cultivate have to be able to account for biases on all these levels too. So some examples from the Bible. Um, I, I've chosen a couple of what I think are very key moments in which the Bible has been used to justify sexism and um, that hopefully help like map or there, there are places where these biases on different levels can like be mapped on. And um, yeah, I'll just kind of toss out some, some questions to think about, you know, how we read these things. 
So um, to start at the beginning with Genesis two and three, right? The creation story. And um, I'm sure most of you are familiar, Eve um, being created from Adam's rib, Adam's need of a helper. Um, and of, of course the fall and Eve's role in the fall, all right, kind of broadly. Now, oh, I wanna note that the, um, there's, a, there's a sense in which we have what men and women are like before the fall, and we have what men and women are like after the fall. And in both cases, there's a kind of hierarchy there, right? There's a, a sense in which even prior to the fall, woman is created to be the helper of man. Eve comes from Adam's rib. She's, um, you know, in part constituted by, by Adam. And this uh, accords with kind of classical ancient imaginative horizons of women being less than men, being a um, uh, perhaps like less substantially human than men. This kind of tracks onto ancient medical ways of thinking about like how, um, you know, the generation of people. And um, this, this tradition for it to be embedded in the natural order prior to the fall says something. And it Christians have interpreted as saying something about kind of like the natural state of men and women. Ideally, even before the fall, this is what the relationship ought to look like. Now, post-fall, things get a lot worse, <laughs> you know, understatement of the century, right? <laughs> but there's, there is a sense in which Christians, early Christians who read the fall, read Eve's role in the fall as being greater than that of Adam's. And so this uh, uh, gave a sense of like, well, Eve is the one who's really responsible for the fall. Eve is the temptress who leads Adam to the fall. And um, in as much as all of humanity is descended from Eve and Adam, there are some Christians who also interpreted women as part of the fallout uh, of like continuing this, um, this kind of temptress inclination towards evil that is encapsulated in Eve's role in the fall. So to, to read something from the third century, this is from Tertullian, who was a bishop in Africa. He says, he's talking to women here, women in his um, congregation. And do you not know that you are each an Eve? The sentence of God on this sex of yours lives in this age. The guild must of necessity live too. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant to attack. So devil would not attack Adam, but would attack Eve. You destroyed so easily God's image man on account of your desert that is death even the son of god had to die Ouch. Right. <laughs> there's a reason i chose this passage you know it really captures the how the the line of logic can follow out right it's not totally dissimilar from um people who blame the jews for the death of jesus right it's like you are descendant this is still um, your responsibility, so to speak. And note too here, like what Tertullian kind of gets right in the following of the logic, 
it's not just that Eve ushers an evil into the world and death into the world and destroys the image of God, man, Adam, but also is somehow responsible now for the death of Christ. So the whole weight of everything is, uh, you know, kind of placed on Eve. And I want to say too, this is not um, totally unusual. I mean, it's a little unusual in its vehemence, right? Like the rhetoric is pretty high, but the logic can be found in a lot of different places too, stretching from the ancient imagination through the medieval. And, um, you know, this is, um, because it happens too at the beginning of the Bible, this is in some ways like sets the stage for future understandings of what men and women are like throughout history. All right, so that was kind of the first major point of um, scriptural interpretation. The second point I want to make um, involves the image of the harlot. And there are two key ways I want to talk about this. First is in the prophetic literature where the infidelity of Israel is described in terms of harlotry and prostitution. And then second, in the book of Revelation with the whore of Babylon. The question I want to kind of think about is why a major example for describing idolatry and unfaithfulness is prostitution and harlotry. Like, what is it about that image? What is it about the, it that makes the metaphor work, so to speak? Like, what kind of meaning is encapsulated in using this analogy? And I'm going to suggest that it plays on broadly held tropes of women as evil because of their sensuality and their sexuality. And we can see this again in uh, kind of like the ancient imagination of associating women with um, the emotions rather than with the intellect, associating women with bodily materiality rather than spirituality. And it's because the, um, the differentiations of the sexes have these meanings kind of attached to them culturally. Like, this is the imaginative horizon in which these metaphors work. But we might want to question, you know, if we want to continue using these analogies. So um, I'll read from Hosea, it's Hosea 2. I will strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and turn her into a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no pity because they are children of whoredom. This is God talking about Israel. Send her into the desert. I'll have no mercy on her children. Israel has turned from me. And so this is the punishment. And again, we might think about what kind of cultural meanings are attached to this language that makes it work, that makes the metaphor have meaning and um, you know, relevance, there's, there's a, a, a kind of disregard for the woman who is a harlot. There's a kind of sense like this is what she deserves to be cast out from our society and for her children to be disowned. Another place you might look is Ezekiel 23, where um, two sisters, one representing Israel, one representing Samaria, are kind of described and they're very graphic uh, escapades, so to speak, with Assyria and Babylon. And 
the I'm not reading it because it is so graphic. It, you know, there's some things in the Bible, turn your ears red. <laughs> but again, there's this question of like, why does this metaphor work? What kind of um, associations about women are being propagated too? You know, if somebody reads this and without a very critical, um, without a critical edge just regarding like who women are, then perhaps it just seems natural that this is the metaphor that's chosen. Again, we can question that. All right, and then um, the, the whore of Babylon. There's, there's, a, there's a way of reading Revelation. The book of Revelation is like the great triumph of God's people, great victory over the Roman empire, um, you know, kind of like the fullness of all things finally reaching its culmination in God and the world is remade and all things are, are new. Um, but again, we have this image of the whore of Babylon kind of representing like the greatest of evils in this book. I'll read some things. It's from chapter 17 and 18. Uh, okay, John sees this woman. This woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her fornication. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abominations. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. Uh, and then skipping a little bit. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so, so give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart, she says, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. So again, we have this imagery of the harlot representing evil, the luxuriousness of her lifestyle, a woman in power. This is the, the, the trope that is being played on here, the, the metaphor that's being kind of teased out in describing who this woman is. And um, I'm going to read a quote from another feminist theologian, Catherine Keller. She says, the whore of Babylon whether later identified as a pope, a political system, an emperor, never literally designated women. The whore of Babylon always meant something not women. The term serves rather to vilify, especially the enemy male, to feminize an abject, mock and reduce him to ashes. But to claim that because the text does not intend misogyny is innocent of its metaphoric subtext to sweep women's ashes under the carpet. So what I like about what Keller says is like, yeah, okay, the whore Babylon maybe never literally meant women. There were perhaps no women in power who could, you know, <laughs> live up to the image of the whore Babylon. But if this is the metaphor that we used to apply to the worst of the patriarchal structures that we see, part of the, the um, the critique is made in feminizing. Part of the critique is, um, you know, stripping them of their, their power by saying, oh, you're just this harlotrous woman. And um, what Keller also gets right is that the subtext sweeps like actual women who've been trampled and um, squished by the societal power structures that be, like 
their memories are not in any way kind of like retained. They're not um, attended to, we might say. So again, if we think about how important our, our metaphors, our images are for forming our horizons of how we understand the relationship between God and God's people, you know, God and Israel, God and the church. We have to note that the gendered aspect of these particular metaphors are what make the metaphors work, what make them striking, what make them like stick in our imagination. And we might want to question if our own horizons are a little bit malformed, if the like go-to image of being unfaithful to God is that of a sexual woman. All right, then the final kind of flashpoint I want to talk about is um, what are called the household colds household codes in the um, epistles in the New Testament. Um, you know, the, the kind of obvious one is 1 Corinthians 14. It says, don't let women speak in church, um, which is often read and presented, you know, in like liturgies, you know, you know, because we just read part of it. It's often presented as women not speaking in general. But right before this passage, there's a long dis, um, discourse about speaking in tongues in a kind of general sense. So this might actually have something to do with, you know, who can speak in tongues, when should they speak in tongues, this sort of thing, which happens a little bit before. Um, then there's also 1 Corinthians 11, which is, um, you know, man is the head of house, like Christ is the head of the church. Um, man should not cover his head as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. There's also where um, more conservative Christians get the justification of women wearing headscarves um, in church. Now, what's interesting about seeing how these things are have often been read is like practical instructions for how to, you know, how to worship, how to um, live in the familial life. You know, again, these in some ways, like reading Genesis two and three alongside these um, household codes kind of reestablishes that there is a hierarchy between man and woman and that the woman's role is one of submissiveness and not just now because of this is some natural order that God created, but also with this metaphor of Christ as head of the church and the familial life is supposed to um, in some way mirror that or represent that. Now we have like an extra injunction, right? To be Christian also means to have Christ or have the, the man serving as like the Christ figure and the woman serving as like the church figure. But as I've kind of already hinted at, you know, these, these passages can also be read kind of in the context of the, the letters themselves, where they fall, what ex exactly the author is talking about particularly. And there's also a kind of sense if we think back about the ancient biases of the world, of, of um, the, the world of scripture writers, you know, their imaginative horizons were shaped by Greco-Roman society in which the man served as the head of household. This doesn't necessarily have to be our imaginative horizon. Um, okay. So with these, um, these things in mind, perhaps I'll just say a few more things about um, what, um, uh, a feminist might want us to kind of critically question as we think ahead of what um, kind of like reading practices we might we might have. Because in some ways, we can't change the text and we have these things in scripture. 
And there's a real question that arises theologically of like, well, if we hold the word of God to be re God's revelation, God's revealing of God's self so that we can enter into relationship with God, well, then how do we read these things if we want to say that's not a part of God's revelation? We want to say, actually, the sexism that we encounter is a product of fallenness, of fallen um, societal relationships. And in some ways, the, the move I've already been hinting at is that the social world of the biblical writers, marked by androcentrism, marked by sexism, doesn't have to be our imagined horizon. And it, it is um, appropriate. A lot of feminist theological work has been um, dedicated to unmasking, we might say, the patriarchal biases of the ancient world and saying, well, these are not our cultural horizons. We can critique these. The, I guess I should say, part of that too is also looking at textual translation works of the Bible. So um, think of Elizabeth Schuster-Fiorenzo who has done a lot of work with the biblical text. She has a great article where she talks about the word diakonos, which uh, you know is roughly translated to deacon. But she traces out translation efforts where when this word is used to talk about men, it's translated as deacon. When it's used to talk about women, it's translated as like helper. Right. So there's even a, a, a sense in which the, the concrete practices of translation can be shaped by our imaginative horizons and we can critically interrogate those. Another interpretive move is to see where there are resources within the Bible to counter our own contemporary sexism. And this can happen, I think, in one of two major ways. One is rehabilitating women's histories and stories. So by drawing attention to the fact that there were women um, in the early Christian communities and that Paul names these women and like says, thank you, like, you know, send my greetings to so-and-so. Um, the, the women who are um, talked about in the gospels and acts, these women too speak of a women's presence in the early church that can be um, held up as an example of, kind of like faithful work with Jesus. The Old Testament too, retrieving some of the stories of women, again, kind of few and far between, but still say something powerful that these stories can exist in a, a sacred collection of writings. They were, so think of Ruth, Jeb, Deborah the Judge, um, Esther. These women's stories are meaningful, but how often are they um, preached? How often are they read in like Bible studies? Right? These are the kinds of questions that we can ask to kind of bring attention, bring these more in our in our own ways in which we like imagine the Bible. So that's one way things can happen. Another way things can happen is by taking texts that um, are in the Bible and giving them kind of liberative readings. So um, we might think of Mary's Magnificat, the song in Luke one. What if our image of Mary was of her singing the song of praise of God casting down the mighty from their thrones and lifting up the lowly? What if this was our first way we thought of Mary rather than as, um, you know, just a, like a passive woman who just says yes and just sits and does very little else, right? Uh, we might 
also think of Galatians 3.28, where it says in baptism, one is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female. What if this was um, the, the like major imaginative horizon for what it means to be Christian? Where like the, um, what it means to enter into new life with God is to be not defined by the divisions which separate humanity. And um, we might point out too that it seems that this kind of reading, this um, more egalitarian readings of scripture might be more in line with how some early Christians read scripture anyways. Um, some feminists have suggested that perhaps one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was so um, agitated about Christians was because it was so radical in its formulation of gender relationships and offered new ways of the organization of the household that contravened Roman um, male superiority. And the fact that this is um, often runs so counter to what we think of indicates like there's a whole sediment of tradition that has kind of like smushed that down, right? Like, again, we have to kind of critically interrogate our traditions of in interpretation because we're still formed by them. So, um, okay, one more, one more thing and then perhaps we can have some time for questions. Um, I just wanna say that learning to read the Bible in new ways and with um, a kind of critical apparatus can be really just quite as simple as questioning things that you've never questioned before. And that learning to, to read the Bible in new ways takes a lot of time and it's a gradual process. You know, we're getting close to Thanksgiving and I was thinking like, what would it be like if you were at Thanksgiving dinner and you know, somebody says that, well, as the Bible says, you know, men should be submissive to their wives. So this is why the woman cooks um, all of our Thanksgiving food or something like that. It's like, well, how would you react to that? What would you say to that? And for, for in some ways, you don't want to just say like, oh, well, Uncle Bill, like, you're just so sexist, like you're the worst. <laughs> because this doesn't, allow for any like real transformation but there's a, a way in which one can like gently question like oh why do you think that why do you think this is the reading of paul why do you think this is what paul was talking about why do you think um you know why why do you think the church has always taught this or this kind of thing and um often we can think of an reading from the margins as like very confrontational you know, kind of going against the powers that be and have shaped us. And I think there's a time and a place for that. Obviously, there's like a, a role for the prophetic, but there's perhaps also a role for a kind of more gentle, long, long um, term, long game, you know, quiet questioning that um, encourages us to, to read things in new ways and to, um, yeah, just open ourselves up for new ways of imagining what our world could be like. All right, that's all I've got. Um, well, actually, that's not true. I have a lot more, but uh, the time, that's all I've got. <laughs> uh, yeah, so maybe, you know, if there are questions or questions. Um, thanks, I really enjoyed this. Um,
I, I was thinking about the, some of the last things you said about um, like what, what different reading approaches can we take? And uh, even thinking about like this idea that say like the, the New Testament's gender uh, sort of on the one hand, we see it like reflecting the culture of the time. And on the other hand, it was critical of it. And I just thought of I, while you're talking about it, things, a few more things along those lines, some of which I talk about with my students. Um, like we, I have them read a little bit of Plato um, uh, when sort of as a lead up to reading Genesis one. Mm -hmm. and, and Plato says, we don't read this, but you know, he says like real friendship, for example, can only happen between males. Um, like it's like a, a, a sort of like philosophical man can't really truly be friends with a woman mm -hmm. or like um, uh, he, he talks about um, women basically being reincarnated men who sort of like couldn't cut it right. as men. <laughs> um, and so I use this to set them up and say, well, like, yes, we have all of these uh, sort of potential not potential, but actually sexist things in the Bible, things that have certainly been used in a sexist way. But if you set it up against this horizon, it looks a little different, um, where you have like the woman actually being like a, a sort of truly compatible, like partner for the man in Genesis 2, or, or um, in Genesis 1, like men and women both being created in God's image, rather than the women being a sort of like inferior, um, you know, version of, of the original uh, sort of feel. Um, so I guess, um, like, how do you navigate being totally, um, really like confronting the fact of the sexism and at the same time, like, there's also like these tensions, like Galatians 3.28, you know, there's neither male nor female with the other things that, that Paul says about men and women. So there's yeah, there's yeah. tensions within the text itself. And there's also the fact that like, um, yes, it's, um, it is sexist and it's been used in sexist ways, but it's also, it often stands in this critical relationship to the sexism of its culture in some kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say first, it's not a zero sum game, yeah. right? There's never all sexism or all like against sexism. And I would say too that within the interpretive moment, like we're bringing questions to the text and the text is um, responding to our questions. So we select what stands out to us in a text that we select because they speak to our questions or they're relevant to what we're trying to find out, you know? So in some ways, um, navigating the, this tension is really dependent on us and like how well we form, we are formed as critical readers, you know, because we can't ask the question unless we've been alerted that the question can be asked, you know, about sexism, Absolutely. like, you know. Yeah. So so there's that. But, and, and I think this accounts too for different um, interpretations throughout, um, throughout church history. So, you know, in some ways, like, yeah, given the backdrop of Plato, and Aristotle too, like, which were kind of dominant philosophical underst understandings of humanity. There is certainly a way to read women being made in the image and likeness of God as a kind of elevation. But this was a live question for the church afterwards. You know, Augustine says that 
Well, women um, are the image and likeness of, of God, but they're not, they, they, like in themselves, they're the image and likeness of God, but they're the most image and likeness of God when they um, are, are attached to a man, when they're married, right? This is how they like perfectly reflect God. So that's like, well, maybe it's a little hierarchy. Yeah. Thomas Aquinas um, doesn't quite say that, but he does say that, um, yeah, men have like a, a kind of like greater reflective share. So, you know, the the horizons are, are shifting based on the reader. So this yeah. is why it's mo like even more important to think about like, how do I read? How, you know, what imaginative horizons are present throughout the church um, in a world that's no longer, you know, in a medieval world, we might say that's perhaps maybe less dominated by Plato, but still just as dominated by Aristotle in some ways, you know, there, there are different kinds of questions can arise. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think I want to, um, I've just been thinking a lot about what you said at the beginning about how hard it is to recognize, mm -hmm. not just historically, but in our contemporary culture, it's just hard to recognize if you're in a position where you benefit from some sort of ism. It's almost impossible to see it unless somehow your eyes are open. And it makes me want to be, I know we have to confront things when we need to, but also to just have some empathy to how hard and difficult it is to see. Um, and do you have anything to speak to that in terms of engaging? I really like what you said about, you know, we're trying to have conversations. Maybe we don't step back. Maybe we continue to engage and to continue to find other ways that we can understand one another. Yeah. Well, in some ways, we're always limited by our own particular experiences, right? I think of, um, you know, like people in my parents' generation, where it's like, yeah, for for them, it was very common for the man to work and the woman to keep house. Um, and if this is all you've ever experienced, it just seems like the way things ought to be. And in some ways, we can't get out of our own experience. You know, we're always like, the limited beings we are, but we can encounter other people's and others' experiences. And in some ways, the first step to broadening our horizons is to meet somebody who has a horizon different than our own. So, and I don't think this necessarily has to be kind of interpersonal engagement. Sometimes it's difficult to meet people out in the world who are different than us, but we can engage art, literature, television, you know, these things can also expose us to an experience that is different and um in a way that may maybe isn't confrontational too but rather like an invitation and i think that for a lot of like my own experiences of broadening my horizons and for friends who i've talked about this kind of thing with that's often like kind of the first step right like oh i read this book and it had like a big impact on me or watched this movie and i it didn't know that this kind of thing existed. So then I went on Wikipedia and I did a lot of research, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I will say, I think that invitational approach for relationships that you want to maintain and have to maintain it, you know, like family members and that sort of thing, 
like I, I, I tend to, to think that an invitation bears more fruit than a kind of finger wagging. Nobody likes to be told that they're sexist, but if you say your imaginative horizons are maybe shaped by sexism, it's a little less um, convicting, right? <laughs> In the books you choose to read when you go to read at schools and the things you do when you when you choose here um you know and, and that's sometimes finding the little moments yeah yeah and, and just looking for them and thinking of the things that you've been taught too mm -hmm. um I, I was thinking when you mentioned the uh the, the adam and eve you know mm -hmm. and it's the, the way i've always been taught is that you've got both the sin of omission and commission there and i invited myself to devotions one year at camp when I heard it being used in the more um, traditional manner and like, um, I'm inviting myself to your devotions and we're going to read that and talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah Just, uh, as a point about like the, the horror of Babylon thing. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's like a cute girl boss. Um, but um, with the uh, with that one, um, I find it interesting that it's not necessarily about a woman, it's just a feminized version of a man, um, because um, it, it, it's just one of those things where, and I can't remember now, so I could, could be completely wrong here, and please tell me if I'm due, but isn't it like one of those things where in a lot of cases, especially in media today, but like in a lot of cases in the Bible, a lot of male figures who are sinful also feminized, like I, I vaguely remember King being feminized in some way for some reason. Hmm. I don't know about Cain, but what what immediately came to my mind was um, Queen Jezebel um, from the Old Testament. Maybe Ahab was her husband, who was the king. And Jezebel also kind of like the whore of Babylon has this like image of like, you know, evil, like the kinds of evil she commits are like way worse than what her husband commits. And um, even, you know, maybe not today, but a couple of decades ago, calling a woman a Jezebel evoked all these things. I don't think, I don't think the kids on TikTok are saying Jezebel. <laughs> you know, things, but, um, yeah, so, but there, there is a sense in which, um, even in our own culture, like what's the first thing that we can do to like attack a man and feminize him, right? So this, this, this move has like a long, long lineage. How many Disney villains are feminine? Mm -hmm. Well, right. queer coding in or, history and yeah. like is, is is just an extension of that in a lot of ways because it's the it's it's feminine it's 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 feminizing the other in a lot of ways because you want to make it as like you want to you want to give it a sense of oh this is evil they're not following into the traditional norms of what they they should follow and that 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 is constant in pretty much a lot of different pop culture and how we always uh, how they often take it. Villains, which is why a lot of Disney villains are queer coded, which is why a lot of a lot of villains in most uh, shows and stuff are queer coded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we might ask the question in other ways, like why are, are our heroes ever made effeminate? This is rarely happens, right? They're usually coded in a kind of like masculine, stereotypically masculine way. Well, and when you think about like the early Christian martyrs, like the women are all like described as becoming men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in their martyrdom. So it's like the opposite, you know, to be virtuous, you have to become a man. Which is also in uh, which is also in its own way, uh, its own way, um, 
I, obviously, like again, this is focused on the margins of women, but like it also is uh, a lot of. It's also a negative impact on men who who have to now live into this traditional standard of masculinity, and that is also in its own way a harmful thing. And, and I know we've discussed in this before how even by center, uh, even the center is harmed by how it how it handles the margins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have really been sad to have missed most of these discussions, but I'm wondering what we do with the Bible as holy, holy writing when some of it just seems to be so contaminated, maybe by its original intent or by the sediment that's fallen over it or our group, that we just have to almost excise some of it, maybe temporarily, but until we can we can look at it in fresh and new new ways and i mean I, I i just thinking about the whole black lives matter thing and how we have decided that certain art which i mean we have to say some of these statues that have been erected in cities are, are pieces of art in some way but that they are just too contaminated by its cultural baggage that we can't have those in public places anymore and should certain parts of the bible be treated that way too? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, we've already, I mean, I'm like you, I'm pretty sure you've talked about this, but we've already done that to the Bible multiple times where things have changed and been taken out. I think we talked about this at one point. Or if I not, I'm so sorry. But no, like we have done that to the Bible. Like that's the thing, we have changed things in the Bible, but it's something that happens all the time, actually. It's yeah, and I, like you said, interpretation, I mean, translation, maybe we have, can remedy some of that by, by sort of a fresh look at how we translate those original texts. But, well, there's, there's a way, too, in which what is, like, privileged within a worshiping community says a lot about it, right? So, like, what passages get read in liturgy, what passages get preached on, I guess today, what passages get their own blog posts, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like there's there's a way in which we can, and we have for the, the entirety of the church's existence, there are some passages of the Bible that are just not privileged. You might think of like the genealogies in the Old Testament. Nobody's reading those except for biblical scholars, God bless them. So, you know, make, making choices about what we find meaningful and relevant is actually what Christians have always done. You know, we read, again, we kind of read the Bible based on the mm -hmm. questions we have questions about meaning and values that um just sort of laughing about that only because um my husband my husband's the priest here and he did preach on genealogies and how the genealogies <laughs> actually had power within what they were trying to state and mm -hmm. the fact that you have Rahab in, in the genealogy of Jesus is a powerful statement but it was there are different things both you look at and there's different purposes for them there so yeah, well, the, the genealogies of Jesus, I have heard homilies yeah. on, right? Oh, the, oh, the old, oh, the the old Testament like ones? Like, like First Chronicles, though. <laughs> first, first Chronicles 1 through 9. There are nine <laughs> chapters of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> this is a historical question. When is the last time that the revised comment lectionary was revised? When, when those readings were pulled together and organized for our liturgical calendar? Well, and there's two and there's two tracks apparently because there even if you're on the revised common common lectionary there's a track A and apparently a track B because we're not necessarily on the same readings as other churches of the diocese. 
because we're following at, at least for some of the I think it's the Old Testament. That's why we had Job and some other parishes were using it. I thought we had Job. Oh no, really? Do you know the answer to that? I don't know. And just like uh, uh, on your point and also on your question there, because you you uh, we as we've talked about in a bunch of other ones. Um, in a lot of the things, we have to actually talk about specific scriptures that uh, are read to marginalize. And we also point out other scriptures that would kind of counteract that marginalization in a lot of ways that are kind of ignored depending on who's, who's preaching at a time. Mm -hmm. I would say, too, the, the kind of biblical art that we um, highlight and like attend to, this is another way of reading scripture, right? And in some ways, maybe even more powerful because it's something visual. It's something we can like, like, you know, kind of like wrap our minds around. And if we think of like how the Virgin Mary is portrayed in a lot of art, the main, there's like two main things, right? There's the Annunciation where she's like passively receiving like the Holy Spirit's, uh, you know, message. Or we like see her at the cross. Both of these are like kind of passive. Mary's, um, you know, kind of like waiting and receptive. But what if, we um, had more art of her going to her cousin Elizabeth. What if we have art of her singing a Magnificat, like, you know, kind of like dancing in the streets or something? This is a, another way in which we can like privilege certain scriptural moments saying like, well, this is what speaks to us today and to our own situation. And this is how God's revelation is, um, is coming to us and transforming us in our own time. And that's, again, this is what the church has done throughout the centuries. So it's not new in the sense of like something that we should be like wary of. What, what about this idea from someone like Origen that when you encounter a, a like, basically something in the literal, the plain sense of scripture that just can't be right, sort of a clue to like allegorize. I don't know, maybe that's just not, maybe that just wouldn't work in, in some of these cases, but maybe there's a way that the that could, that sort of approach could be used to like subvert the the mm -hmm. image. I don't I don't know. Yeah, well, don't get me going on mystical reading. Uh, right, sure. right, this right, is my yeah. one of my pet yeah. things. But but there is a sense with which you know like what the allegory or spiritual reading of scripture like these are shaped by our own imaginative horizons yeah. too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like right. again, it kind of comes back to this onus of like, are we forming ourselves in such a way that we can can read things in new ways and yeah. can read things in a liberating way rather than like maybe the same old single depressive way yeah maybe one more question do you have no, some? no 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 okay. well thank you so much uh dr maxi we really appreciate your time and i mean i, I have a lot of questions still but um this is i mean i think that's the point too you know right. once you start asking the questions it does open up you know a whole host of other ones um but thank you for getting us started. Well, thanks for inviting me in, guys. This thank is really so fun. Yeah, thanks, Amy.